0: It was a great lesson for me about be prepared for an answer and never be too big as a leader to sit down and listen to the people that you lead. And when they give you something that helps you, execute on it. And that's exactly what he did.
1: Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another amazing episode of For the Love of Money. I cannot wait for you to hear today's episode because I am sitting down with Anton Gunn. Listen, this guy is a true renaissance man. He has done everything. Now, at the core... He's known as the world's leading authority on socially conscious leadership. And so we are definitely talking leadership. And he's going to help us understand what socially conscious leadership is. It's going to be very important to your business. He is the best-selling author of the very popular book, The Presidential Principles. And that title should give you a little insight that he was also a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama and met with him regularly, helping him to guide different policy. So we're definitely going to chat about what his experience was like in the White House and just the cool different things that he was a part of. He has been featured in Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine, BBC, Good Morning America, you name it. He is everywhere and deservedly so. So it's such a privilege to have him on today's show. Listen, we're talking leadership. We're talking diversity. We're talking about why diversity is going to help every single person's business grow, this is a crucial episode for each and every one of you, and I know you're gonna love it. By the way, before we get started, I wanna remind you that we are already taking applications and we're already filling the waiting list for both of our masterminds. You can check out the Elite Level Mastermind for anyone making over a half a million dollars a year. You can go to fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind to check that out and apply there. Again, the Elite one is for the com forward slash mastermind. And if you're making under five hundred thousand dollars a year and you want to learn how to get over that hump and scream towards a million, then you can go check out our more early stage mastermind called fastfoundations.com. Again, go to fastfoundations.com. If you have not quite hit that half a million dollar mark, it's best for businesses that are creeping up on a hundred grand to two hundred grand somewhere in that mark. Anyhow, go check out the masterminds. We are starting to put people on the waiting list. We are starting to take applications because we always fill these things early for the next one coming up. And I cannot wait to sit in a room with you, lock arms and help you grow your business. All right, get ready because this episode with Anton Gunn is seriously about to change your business, change your perspective and change your life. Anton, welcome
2: to the show. I really appreciate you being on today.
0: Happy to be with you.
2: So I always kick my show off with rapid fire. It's a fun way to help my listeners get to know you in a hurry. And if something really good comes up, of course, we'll circle back around and do a deep dive on it. Are you in? Sounds good. All right. So we're going to start real easy. Where'd you grow up?
0: I grew up in uh, Norfolk, Virginia is what I call home. I'm a military brat. Actually, four generations of men in my family served in the military. And so Norfolk is my home. And uh, the 757 Tidewater area, of Virginia, is, is a place that I affectionately call home.
2: Oh, I love it. And thank you for your service, by the way, you and your entire family. Thank you. So what is your favorite quote?
0: Uh, my favorite quote is, um, success without a successor is a failure. Ooh, and that's by wow. Dr. Dr. Miles Monroe is uh, the one who says that quote. And it's all about your legacy.
2: That is really good. I love that. What is one of your superpowers, would you say?
0: Uh, My superpower is being able to take complex ideas and issues and breaking it down so that anybody can take advantage of it.
2: Mm, I love that. It's a good superpower to have. What is one of your favorite books other than two of your own, of course?
0: Uh, Yeah, so I would say Out the Gate would be uh, the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell, one of the first leadership books that I've ever read. And it helped me at a very difficult time in my life. And uh been applying those laws to my life ever since.
2: Anton, same. He, he was actually on the show probably about a year ago now. Wow. And, uh, incredible individual.
0: Yes. Yeah, amazing.
2: A couple more here. What's one of your favorite accomplishments so far? You've done so much.
0: My favorite accomplishment? Uh, I would say, is being the father of a smart, healthy 15-year-old.
2: I love that. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, What is one thing you're challenged by at the moment?
0: Uh, Challenged by a lot. um, The coronavirus environment has made lots of things difficult for business. You know, can't travel like I used to and and, uh, now having to do things virtually. So the merging of my home life and my business life all at the same time is uh, an interesting challenge that we found a way to make it work. But again, I know it's a challenge for everyone.
2: Yeah, everyone's in that boat right now. And then last but not least, what are you grateful for today?
0: Um, I'm grateful for uh, life, health, and strength. And I'm grateful for my family. My wife, I've been married 20 years uh, this last month. Oh, congrats. Yeah. So very excited about that. And I'm just grateful that we are better today than we ever were in any point in our previous 20 years. And not a lot of marriages can say that.
2: Oh, that's powerful. Lori, that's my wife, Lori. She, uh, she and I have 15 years coming up in August. So oh, 20 fantastic. years, that's amazing.
0: Yes, great milestone.
2: Well, let's dive into the little bit deeper questions now. And before we get into your really awesome journey from college football player to becoming an elected official in the state legislator and uh, you know, senior level cabinet member to President Obama and, and a successful entrepreneur, of course, I want to start by taking you back about 30 years ago, Mm. there was a time about 30 years ago in your life where you say that you were a disengaged team member trapped in a dysfunctional culture with a bad leader. Could you take us back there and tell us what was going on?
0: Yeah. So um, it actually goes back to college football. So um, when I finished high school, I was one of the most highly recruited athletes out of the Hampton Roads area. Everybody knows that's a hotbed for Great football players, Allen Iverson, mm-hmm. Michael Vick, all kinds of players. And, you know, I was a great one. I had like 54 Division One scholarship offers to go to college. And I had my, you know, pick of the litter. I could go to UCLA. I could go to Stanford. I can go anywhere I wanted. And I chose to come to the SEC, which I thought was the best football, and play at the University of South Carolina. And how I summarize my experience in college is that my freshman year, we won three games. My sophomore year, we won five games. My junior year, we won four games. And my senior year, we won six games. We were mediocre at best. We were completely marginal as a team. However, I played with 22 guys that played in the NFL for seven years or more. So we had incredible talent, but we never produced in college. And it went back to the culture of our team. How We were treated by our coaches and the things that they said to us, how they made us feel as a person. I barely played my entire four-year career. So I wasn't a standout superstar uh, college football player. I was a standout high school player. but When I got to college, I was marginal at best because the way I was spoken to and treated as a player, the way we were treated as a player, it made me recoil uh, from the entire process. And I did barely enough to stay on the team. And it's kind of like that employee that some people has that shows up at eight fifty nine, and they clock out at four fifty nine. They're doing the bare minimum to contribute and not bringing their best self to work every day. And that's who I was. And I knew I could have been better, should have been better, but the environment was so heavy and so toxic. I just wanted to do the bare minimum until I can find my way out.
2: Wow. Okay. Without getting anyone in trouble and without putting you in a spot, can you give us a, a specific example that made that environment toxic? And maybe even relate it to, as a metaphor, to entrepreneurship or leadership today?
0: Yeah, without a doubt. So um, you all want to reward, you always want to reward your best employees, your best talent for the accomplishments that you've set out for goals for them. You know, so when they, when they hit a goal, you want to celebrate the goal, okay? So this is what happens. And I'll give you uh, the final straw that broke the camel's back to, that made me get away from football was my last season. I was a standout student athlete. I was the first football player to graduate in three and a half years. First one wow. to graduate in three and a half years. And so, we had had a mediocre season, but we did enough to win a bo- to get to a bowl game. And so, at the end of football season, which was November December, uh, we were preparing for the January bowl game. So our coach says, "Okay, we're going to have two days uh, every day until the week before Christmas before we head down to Miami for the bowl game." And I told my coach, I says, hey, coach, listen, I want you to know, I finished all my requirements to graduate, and graduation is on Tuesday, December 19th. And he says, okay, why are you telling me? I said, well, practice is twice that day, early in the morning and late in the evening. And I said, I'm not going to be able to be at practice because I'm going to graduate. I got 30 family members coming from Virginia to see me graduate from college that morning at 11 a.m., And he says, okay, well, I'll see you at the afternoon practice. I says, no, this is really a big deal for my family. They're all sticking around. And my dad wants to take me out to dinner with the entire family that evening at 530 before they get back on the road to drive seven hours back to Virginia. And he told me, if you don't show up at practice, you're letting the team down. And I said, coach, I'm graduating. You should be happy about that. You told us first day when we got here, our goal is to graduate first. And I'm doing that but you're telling me I got to come to a practice. He says, if you don't come to practice, you know what the penalty is. So I said, you know what? I'm going to graduation. I went out to dinner with my family. And that following day at practice, my coach uh, at the end of practice stood me up and three other players, because they did the same thing. They went to graduation and went out with their families. He stood the four of us up and he says, okay, y'all stand up. And we thought we were about to be celebrated in front of our teammates. For achieving an accomplishment of getting our college degrees while we were still playing football. And he stood us all up and says, These four men let you down. While you were here getting ready to play against West Virginia in a bowl game, they skipped practice. So, y'all know what the penalty is for skipping practice. You gotta run stadiums. So, after walking commencement the day before, I had to run up and down my college stadium for an hour after a hard full pads practice because I graduated early. And so mm. the, ch- the challenge, and this is really part of my work. So this is really in the foundation of what I do as a consultant with organizations that you got to build a world-class culture with diverse, high-performing teams. And you got to help your team members, your people, your human capital bring their best self to work every day And you got to answer three questions for them. And here's the fundamental questions that you ask every day, Chris. These are questions that every client asks. These are questions that every customer that walks into any business asks every day. Question number one is, do you care about me? Question number two is, will you help me? And question number three is, can I trust you? Mm -hmm. And when my coach made me run for graduating early, he demonstrated to me that he doesn't care about me or my family. For one practice and that he wasn't willing to help me to be successful because he would rather me compromise on those things that were going to lead to my lifelong success for his short-term immediate gain. And I couldn't trust that he was going to have my back for anything that I did. And at that moment, that's when I made a decision that I wasn't coming back to college for my senior fifth year football season. And that was my wow. last football game.
2: Wow. Okay. So, you know, uh, you know, silver linings come out of dark times. Do you think this is one of those turning points in your life where this is the beginning of you becoming a leadership expert? I mean, what if you would have came back for you know year five and played well and gotten in the NFL? You may not be on this track that you're on today.
0: A hundred percent right. You're a hundred percent right. And and I would say I take every every experience and I find the good in it or the great in it and use it for momentum in my life. And I will tell you, Uh, Bar none, my college football experiences shaped me in an unforgettable way. It taught me everything of what a good leader should do. And, you know, in sports, you got all kinds of examples. I mean, you got great motivational coaches like Lou Holtz and you got coaches like Bobby Bowden and and Bill Walsh, coaches that we revere because of how they took care of their players and took care of their people. And And the measurement of that is when these guys are 45 years old and they see their former coach. Do they want to hug them around the neck or do they want to choke them by the neck? And so (laughs) I learned the value of how you treat people, how you invest in people, how do you inspire and motivate them to bring their best self to work every day, to contribute to the big picture goal, the vision that you've all set and celebrate them when they make their milestones and when they achieve it. And my college football was one of those experiences. It's not the greatest one, The greatest one relates to my brother and his service to our country. But the first one would be my college football experience.
2: You know, you you brought up your brother, your younger brother, Sharon. Am I saying that name right? Sharon?
0: That's correct. It's Sharon.
2: So Sharon was killed in the Al-Qaeda terrorist attack on the USS Cole back in October 2000. And, you know, you're a gold star brother. Please share with us what that means. Uh, And in addition to that, Because of that, you've been a powerful speaker on the impact of terrorism in in your life and in our lives. So could you share what a Gold Star Brother is and then tell us about the significance of this terrorist attack and the leadership legacy of service inspired by your brother's ultimate sacrifice?
0: Yes, I'm happy to do that. So a Gold Star Brother is a part of Gold Star families. And so in the history in the nation of, of the United States of America, when it comes to military service, they would call military families. So spouses, children, siblings of, of service members. They're known as blue star families. And the symbolism was during World War I, they would hang a flag in the window of a home anywhere in the country to let you know that that household had a family member that was serving our country in the military. But in World War I, as well as in World War II, whenever anyone was killed in combat, that blue star flag was replaced with a gold star flag to symbolize mm. this family had lost someone in active duty in service to our country. And so since, you know, the 1930s gold star families are really before that gold star families have been known as families who've lost someone in military service to our nation. And I unfortunately joined this very small unfortunate fraternity in October of 2000 when my younger brother Sharon joined the Navy and was assigned to the USS Cole, and they went on a med cruise, and they were going through the Persian Gulf, and they pulled into the country of Yemen, the port of Aden, to refuel on a Thursday afternoon, and a Thursday morning, and at 11.18 a.m., two Al-Qaeda suicide bombers pulled a small boat beside the ship and blew a 40-by-40-foot hole, killing 17 sailors, and my brother was one of the 17. Oh. And the significance of this is um, this was before the average American had any idea who Al-Qaeda was. This is before nine eleven. 11 A few people in New York remember the 93 bombing of, of Al-Qaeda, but that's about it. So we were living in a peacetime. Life was good. The only thing we were worried about in 2000 was Y2K. And mm-hmm. that was a blip that went away. And so life was good up until that day. And it fundamentally uh, transformed me because... I wanted to quit and give up on the entire world. I was doing good community work and adding value to people, uh, working in the nonprofit sector. But when my brother was killed, the only thing I wanted to do was to quit my job, move back home to Virginia, hold my other two brothers and my mom and dad close to make sure nothing else happened to them. Because it felt like, what good is it to try to help the whole world when you can't even save the people who are closest to you? And And in the middle of that moment, I was devastated and I just wanted to give up on life. Oh,
2: Anton, I don't even know how you pull yourself out of that moment. Like, I can't imagine that happening. I'm literally looking at my brother across the cabin right now as I record this. You know, I, I can't imagine losing a brother, losing family like that. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. Uh, how did you pull out of that That feeling of not wanting to do anything other than just protect your family?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I will say, um, you know, I'm a faith driven guy, a Christian, and you know, I know that everything happens for a reason. There's nothing that is arbitrary. There's a pur- purpose attached to everything. And in the middle of that moment when I was in my deepest pain, what I started to see around me is there were other people in pain. So again, I told you there were 17 families mm-hmm. and we were all united by this tragedy. And we had media in our face and reporters. I I mean, I was on Good Morning America literally 72 hours after I found out my brother was killed in a terrorist attack. Mm. And because I was skilled at communicating and I'd been in press conferences for social issues and other things, I was good on TV. And I saw that the families didn't have a unified voice. They didn't have anybody speak for them. No one could articulate the complexity of the pain that we were feeling but me. And so I literally became a de facto spokesperson for the 17 families who lost someone on the USS Cole. And I saw when I was able to speak to the pain that these other families were having and what my family was experiencing, I saw people come to me and say, Anton, you were great. You you really spoke to what I was feeling. And, and it helped me to hear you talk about your brother the same way I talk about my son or my, my sibling. And what I started to see is that I could be more helpful to people by channeling my pain and my hurt into serving other people. And I literally made a commitment to serve at that point. And so when I wanted to walk away and back away from the whole world, I turned around and said, what can I do to help someone? And it became the greatest next four years of my life where I did nothing but serve other people. I volunteered on boards. I got involved in charities. Um, I you know, was doing social work. I was doing counseling with adolescent youth, people who were in their own crises, but I was finding a way to help them, finding a way to serve, to help them to solve the problems that they have. And that is actually the crux of my business now as a, as a consultant, is I help people to solve the problems that they have, the biggest pain points that they have. And I've solidified it around their people. How can I help you To solve your people
2: problems. I mean, there's such a lesson in there that no matter what type of of down and out moment we are in, if we just like lean into the service of others, that's one of the the most important things that could ever pull us out of it.
0: Yes, without a doubt. I I will tell you, you know, you asked me, my favorite quote was about legacy. And um, I, I summarize my life into three values. The first value is service. The second value is empowerment. And the third value is legacy. And that that is who I am. And so if I do nothing else every day, I'm going to serve someone. I'm going to empower someone. And I'm going to do something to grow my legacy. And to me, that is what the ultimate level of success is, is what happens long after you have left this earth.
2: Wow, I love that. So fast forward 20, 22 years, and today yeah. you're a leadership expert, but not just like, one of these millions of leadership experts out there specifically you are a leadership expert in socially conscious leadership can you share what the difference is to us
0: yeah so i I will tell you that um, there are a lot of people who will teach you leadership about you know how to manage a team or how to lead a, a great group and you know what are the things you should think about as a leader i would say the fundamental failure of many people as they think about the leadership journey is they try to focus on their product knowledge. And when I say product knowledge, if you run a company, you might know your products and services better than anybody else because you created the product, you helped refine the product, and you're the one that gets it to market every day. So you know your product. But I will tell you, the lifeblood of your success is not just that product. When you get to a leadership level, it's about the people who help you operationalize doing what you do every day. And so socially conscious leadership is how do you have awareness as a leader about everything that could be going right or going wrong in your business? How do you have situational intelligence, particularly around your people? And what my research shows, and I got a study in the field right now of a thousand people across the country in multiple industries, is is that here's the biggest challenge for leaders in terms of their consciousness. 50% of leaders are not aware of the frustrations, challenges, and the unfairness that might be happening in their employee population. Someone gets passed over for a promotion. Someone um, gets uh, slighted or discriminated against or gets yelled at or uh, literally gets treated with the utmost disrespect in the work environment. 50% of leaders don't even know that's happening. But then you have 35% of leaders who know that it's happening, but they don't do anything about it. They Whoa. say it's a, it's a cost of doing business or you know it doesn't really matter that much or they'll make an excuse. It's somebody else's responsibility. So for instance, if you run a multinational corporation or a major corporation, you would say that's HR's job to fix all of the people problems. It's not my job as an executive leader. It's HR's job to fix it. So they delegate the problem to somebody else. And some people even paralyze and say, you know what? I really don't know what to do about this problem. I really don't have an answer. So that's 85% between those two buckets. The third bucket is what I call the 10%. This is the worst group. These are the people who see injustice and unfairness, incivility in their work environment, and they're a very small group, but they literally think they're going to benefit financially, emotionally, socially, politically from having a difficult and toxic work environment. Like awesome. my coaches used to do that kind of stuff. They, they, they loved it when the defense fought, not played against each other on the field. I'm talking about literally fighting in a locker room that they thought that was good to build up that kind of animosity and that somehow we would win better because you had that kind of culture amongst the team. So that's 95% of leaders who are stuck along that continuum, that what I call the social conscious construct. But the greatest leaders, the greatest business owners, the ones who actually transform industries and transform lives at the same time, are what I call the 5%. The most admired leaders who believe that it is their responsibility to build a culture where everybody thrives because they spend every day Trying to solve problems and make it right for the people that they lead, that they spend their time asking the question "What's wrong," and then coming up a solution that takes away the barriers for everyone to succeed at the highest level of their ability to perform in that organization.
2: Could you give us an example of a five percent leader, someone we might recognize?
0: I can give you a full list of five percent leaders. (laughs) I'll, I'll I'll start with some external ones that people don't really think about or they know them but they don't think about in this way. Mother Teresa is a 5% leader. Oh, yeah. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a 5% leader. Yeah. Nelson Mandela is a 5% leader. Jack Welsh is a 5% leader. Steve Jobs is a 5% leader. These are leaders who spend their career, they at, literally build their lives around writing what's wrong and finding a way to democratize institutions, the world in general. I mean, like Steve Jobs, when I say Steve Jobs, a lot of people know his idiosyncrasies and how he was as a leader, but his whole revolution around products was around democratizing technology for everyone to be able to benefit from it, no matter where you sat. And it wasn't about big box companies. It was about putting the power of that technology in the hand of an individual to allow them to, to create their own life. And that's why, you know, his brand, his business is evangelical to so many of us who use Apple products. You have been in an Apple store at any time and see oh, the yeah. people who work there and how evangelical they are about totally. helping people to understand the work? Yep. So that's, that's a 5% leader. And so what I spend my time in organizations trying to help them to do is to identify... Uh, the challenges in their culture and walking them through the seven behaviors that build admired leaders or that build a world class culture.
2: Wow, I absolutely love that! Thank you for all that. And speaking of, you know, working with and studying leaders, you worked very closely with President Obama for a long time. I'd yes. be remiss if I didn't ask you what was that like, and what do you think your biggest takeaway was coming out of that?
0: Oh, wow! So uh, I'm just so grateful um, for the opportunity to sit at the foot of the most powerful man uh, on the planet for about eight years. And also the fact that uh, not only did I learn from him, but he listened to me. Uh, I think the greatest lesson that I learned from Barack Obama is that it doesn't matter how big your title, how big your role as a leader, never, ever, ever be so big that you're not willing to sit down and listen to the people that you lead. Wow. I take that away, and I share that at every keynote that I do. About that lesson is that I walked into the Oval Office uh, one day, and it was around four o'clock in the afternoon. And I knew he still had a busy schedule before his date ended. And I was invited in because he brought me in to say thank you to me, because my my work for him wasn't around healthcare reform and the Affordable Care Act. Really, around helping people to get enrolled in healthcare coverage that we now call Obamacare and helping a lot of Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs get coverage. And so he brought me into the Oval Office to tell me thank you for some work that I was doing around building big partnerships to help do the work. And at the end of our five minutes, because most people only get five minutes with the president, and he says to me, Anton, is there anything you think I could be doing or we could be doing better? A leader asked me, Who has all of the advisors at his feet and all the technology and information at his feet, intelligence at his feet? He asked me, Is there anything you think that we could be doing better? And I was always prepared for an answer. And I told him. Hey, there's
2: a lesson right there, by the way. I don't want people to miss that. Always be prepared for an answer. Okay, awesome. Keep going.
0: When somebody asks you a question, always be prepared for an answer. And so I told him that our biggest challenge is finding a way to connect what we're doing. To young people, and that helping young people understand the value of their safety and security of having good health because they believe they're invincible. We all, when we're young, we never think we're gonna die. We never think we're gonna get hurt. And if we do get hurt, we're gonna come back from it. And so Mm -hmm. for me, the moment I started talking, you know what he did? What? He sat down on the resolute desk, he unbuttoned his jacket and folded his arms, and he proceeded to listen to me. For the next 20 minutes. Wow. And other people came in because they had a meeting behind me and he put his hand up and he says, hold on, I need a little bit more time. And I told him, I says, I don't think you as the president is the right person to help us to connect with young people. And everybody knows Barack Obama was a young guy's president and they're all the young Mm -hmm. people loved him. But I said on this issue, they can't relate to you. They can't really relate to me. And he says, well, who can they relate to? I says, they can relate to LeBron James. Oh, so yeah. LeBron James has health care and he works out every day. He keeps his health self healthy, but he also has health insurance coverage because he knows if he gets sick, he's going to hurt himself and his long-term viability if he doesn't have health. So I said, what I need you to do is I need you to call LeBron James and I need you to have him do some public service announcement and commercials about the importance of having health insurance coverage and help people to sign up. And I walked out of that meeting and I got a call 45 minutes later from his other staff saying, hey, so the president wants us to reach out to LeBron James. Can you tell us what this is about? So now (laughs) we're all working on a strategy to get LeBron to come and do some, you know, advertising, if you will, for the president. And of course, it later involved him coming to the White House to play a basketball game because that was customary for people to do. But it was a great lesson for me about be prepared for an answer and never be too big as a leader to sit down and listen to the people that you lead. And when they give you something that helps you, execute on it. And that's exactly what he did.
2: Wow, what an awesome story. Thank you for sharing that. You know, as, as we record this, we just got done talking about all these accomplishments. I mean, you worked at the White House and so closely with President Obama, not to mention all of the other accomplishments that you have had as an author. And as an entrepreneur, and you know, you are literally a manifestation of the American dream, especially in the entrepreneurial world. Yes. But as we record this, we're in the middle of a, a very important time in our country. You know, a time where systemic racism has been has it's reached a boiling point, really. And people who never even paid attention to this, or even never even heard the term before, or maybe were triggered by the term before, they're finally talking about it and waking up. Can you speak on this a little bit in regards to the systemic challenges that Black entrepreneurs like yourself face while trying to build a business or build wealth?
0: Oh, yeah, um, without a doubt. We, we are at a very difficult time in America right now. And um, there are people having conversations about things that they haven't ever had before. And for me, that's actually a good thing because I think many times in our country, we've lost our ability to communicate with each other. And I think that's the biggest failure. But for an as an entrepreneur, as someone who's been trying to build a business, it's it's very hard. And when I say hard, I'll I'll give you an example. You know, my product or services could be just as good as somebody else's products and services. But when I walk in the door, I'm being asked to produce more documents, more data, more credibility to prove done what I said that I'm going to do where someone else, they may just walk in and and get the opportunity just on a handshake or just on a good feeling. And sometimes people like to do business with people that look like them. I mean, that's just a a fact of life. We feel more comfortable hiring people like us that have a shared experience. And so, you know, if you look at a company like Enterprise Rent-A-Car, they hire more college athletes than anybody else Mm -hmm. because they feel more comfortable with those people who have that background. So, Mm -hmm. Hiring people who are like you is very similar. So when you think about who has the purse strings in a company or who can sign a contract or who can give you an opportunity to add value to this company, nine times out of 10, I'm talking to someone who doesn't look like me. Mm -hmm. And so there's a hurdle there that you always have to overcome. You have, have to overcome other hurdles. Like when you're going to a bank to try to access capital, to grow your business. If you want to access some capital to invest in technology or something in your business, you again got to go through five or six more hurdles, produce another 1099 or produce another tax return. Or can you give me a copy of this contract to prove that you're doing this amount of volume of business? And everybody has to produce something. But at at some point, when I give you six months of tax returns that ought to be enough, where Chris, you might only have to turn over two months of tax returns. Not, yeah. and yeah. so these things are real for people, and they also just you know it, it's it 's exhausting sometimes, but for me, if you have that entrepreneurial spirit, you know that you cannot be deterred, and you know I tell people I get excited about no because if if you tell me no, then that shows me that you 're not the right fit for what i 'm bringing to the table, and it 's time for me to stop wasting time with you and find. The next customer that is the right fit for me. And eventually, when I find the right people, I build the long term relationships that continue to add mutual value to them and value to me. And I wanna do business with people who understand my core values of service, of empowerment, and legacy. And not every business does that. And so I gotta be okay with being told no sometimes so I can find the person who's ready to say yes because of our shared values.
2: So let me take this a, a step further because I really want to do a little bit of mist, uh, myth busting here. Um, sure. Oftentimes people will see an individual like yourself who has reached the highest levels and they'll say, well, look, he did it. He beat oh, yeah. this systemic challenges. So why isn't everybody else? Why don't they work harder? Why don't they try harder? Why don't they, could you speak on that a little bit? Oh yes,
0: without doubt. So let me go ahead and give People, uh, another term that you haven't heard probably in the lexicon of this whole debate around racism, and that is black exceptionalism. And black exceptionalism is a term to basically describe to say, hey, Michael Jordan made it to the NBA. Why can't you make it to the NBA? Or Oprah Winfrey is a phenomenal success. Why can't you be like Oprah Winfrey? Because those are the exceptions. And not the rule. And so for every Oprah Winfrey, there are 12 million people who are not Oprah Winfrey. For Mm -hmm. every Michael Jordan, there's a 3 million kids who will never get past high school basketball. And so the assumption of saying that because one person made it, that everybody else is making an excuse of why they can't make it. That's not reality. Particularly when you think about the hurdles that some people have to overcome just to get an opportunity, so this framework of thinking that if one person make it, then everybody can make it, is not grounded in the reality of the of the experiences that people have. And we can even dive deeper. and, and I'll give you an example: some entrepreneurs are able to start their business. Um, they don't. Everybody doesn't have the rags to riches story that we like to hear. That you know, I grew up homeless. And I founded my company, and I turned it into a 25 million dollar enterprise or something. we have those stories. but a lot of people start off, not on first base, they start off on third base. Hmm. But because their parents bought a house in 1920, and that value increased, and then they bought a second house in 1930. That value increased. When their kids finished went to college, or if they did go to college, they went for free. And when they finished college. Instead of them having to hustle like a lot of people have to hustle with no money and a dream in their in their mind, they get on first base because they get a $25,000 lump sum to be able to invest in the equipment to make the product that they're going to sell. And mm-hmm. so if you're Black, you couldn't own a home in 1920 in certain cities. Yep. But there were laws and policies in place that prohibited you from being able to own property. And you were redlined out of certain zip I codes.
2: I don't mean to interrupt, but people don't realize that there are deeds that you can go look up where on the deed, it says it cannot be deeded to a Correct. black person, a black bear
0: Correct. There are deeds that said you they, you couldn't, Chris, you couldn't even give me a house in certain parts of American history. That's one. The second part of it is is in that same context about you not being able to access that type of opportunity, uh, the, the, the lack of wealth or the inability to maintain wealth and to even build wealth has been throughout since the early part, literally since slaves were freed. I mean, wealth was stripped from people. Land was stolen from people. People would come in and tell you that you really don't own this property. And because you don't read and write or you can't read and write, you weren't allowed to read and write that they took property away from people. And these all of these things are the foundations that build wealth in America. Or I can tell you other unconscionable stories, like, and this is the last one, about the expansion to the West. So when the United States went from just 13 colonies and started expanding West, and they started to build the cross-continental railroad. So they wanted to build a railroad out West. But here's what people don't remember. 30 years before we had a railroad, before trains were even the ability to go west. The American government gave settlers the ability to buy land across the west at a monumental discount. So they would say to you, Chris, we'll sell you land at a dollar an acre and you can buy as many acreage as possible because they wanted people to settle the west. So you would pack up on the East Coast, you had $100 to your name, and now you got 100 acres of land. Well 25 years later the railroad is coming through your town and they need that same land to build a railroad so the government comes back and says hey chris we want to buy 15 of your acres at $1000 an acre wow but because i'm black i was prohibited from accessing that grant program that would sell land at a dollar an acre so i could never even buy land in oklahoma or texas wow or any of the territories so i'm not even given an opportunity to move west and set up stakes and own something and i never had any money in the first place so i couldn't even afford a hundred acres but i probably could have afforded one maybe a half an acre but i couldn't even do that because i was prohibited by my race from being able to access the program and if you look at how the west grew it was those kinds of opportunities that built a lot of land barons in the west because people had land that was in the way of the railroad. And if you weren't right in the middle of the railroad, but you were beside the railroad, you can open up your storefront business and sell every time the train stopped in your town and grow your massive company. I couldn't do that. It's,
2: it, it's, it, it blows my mind because it's if if gathering wealth is a race and there's a starting line, then what people don't realize is because of all of these and many more reasons we started we being white people at the starting line or even further ahead towards the finish line, while black people were not able to start the finish line they were they had to start way back behind that that those starting blocks, right Yes, and then here's what's even worse, like your modern day examples of providing extra documentation or people wanting to do business with people that look like them. it's not just where you started in the race, you have a whole set of hurdles, a whole set of headwinds that white people don't have, and this is not to say that white people don't have really difficult times. I mean, of course, everybody, I'm not making that claim. Everybody, everybody does. does. correct. But you guys have an entirely different set of hurdles and an entirely different set of um, headwinds that we never had to deal with. And when we sit here in modern day and people say, what's, what's the problem? These laws don't exist today. Why don't they just, like you said, um, show up with black exceptionalism the way Oprah or Michael Jordan or Barack Obama did And that when they try and make the case that simple, they don't realize that things like redlining wasn't even illegal until the Fair Housing Act in like 1968, I think it was, which is, uh, that was only nine years before I was born. Correct. This is not long ago. There has not been enough time to catch up in this race, so to speak.
0: Not even close enough time. And, you know, I try to explain it, that if we were running a hundred yard dash, you're starting 50 yards down the track. And I'm 150 yards back behind the starting line. And I got weights on my ankles and I don't have shoes to run in. Yeah. And so even if I could catch up, it's going to be bloody and painful for me trying to catch up. And that's the experience of you know many entrepreneurs. And, and not only I work with large corporations, but I also help a lot of entrepreneurs. I remember a gentleman I talked to just about four years ago. I helped again understand a complex healthcare organization in order to be able to get a contract out of them. This gentleman, for 10 years of his business, was a two person shop. And every time he went in to negotiate, to try to get an opportunity, he would always get directed to someone who would say, Well, tell me what you want to do. And he would explain to them what he wanted to do in terms of logistics and operations. They literally would turn around and go tell a family member who had who didn't have a business to incorporate an LLC to come through the door, make your wife the head of the LLC so it can look like a minority-owned business because it was a woman-owned business, to take his idea and get the contract. And he he told me at least five different instances of how that happened to him. And Gosh. so I was helping him to figure out how could he position his business so he could grow it to to something that he could be very proud of rather than be 10 years, the same two person operation that he's been. And now he has 22 employees, $5 million in revenue, and he's doing very well. He, he came to me one day, we had lunch and he says, I just want to thank you for what you did for me. And he cried in front of me because he says he was going to give up on his dream and just go get a job because it was Mm -hmm. too hard trying to be an entrepreneur because of how, He was getting swindled out of ideas and out of contracts by people who seemingly had everything already figured out and would put people in place to take advantage of things that he thought he was getting a fair shot of. And he wasn't.
2: So let me ask you this. As we're all starting to wake up to some of the issues at hand here,
0: Mm -hmm. how, how
2: can white entrepreneurs best support aspiring black entrepreneurs?
0: Two simple ways, and, and I'll start with the simplest. So, number one, uh, we all, every business has the opportunity to do contract work. I mean, and what do I mean, contract work? We all need people to help us to leverage. So, if you are uh, a manufacturing company and you're shipping product, you got to use a business to help ship your product. So, how do you identify a minority entrepreneur, a smaller entrepreneur, and give them an opportunity to help you? to deliver your goods and services to your customers. So the contracting opportunity is the best way I think you can help people is to find people who can do what you need them to do and partner with them. We all grow through partnerships that advance both of our mission and our ministry, where some people's businesses is like a ministry to them. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, I know you don't say yes to every opportunity. And when you decide that you're going to pass on an opportunity, who are you giving that opportunity to? Who are you letting know, hey, I can't really do this deal, but who's in your network? And if you don't have any entrepreneurs of color in your network, it's time to find some entrepreneurs to bring into your network. And invite them to your mastermind. Invite them to your, your coaching program. Give them the opportunity uh, to attend the conferences that you attend. And so people get to know them just as well. And that's, that's what I'm grateful for because I have a lot of friends and partners and you know we have a mutual friend in Rory Vaden. I do oh, business yeah. with Rory. He's the and, best. And he's one of the best. And so Rory does this. Rory speaks at a company and delivers a great job for them. And he says, listen, I'm not coming back next year because you never really have the same speaker twice. But if you're looking for someone on a topic of leadership, let me introduce you to my friend, Anton Gunn. And he mm-hmm. gives him my bio, gives him my details, and it gives me the, just the opportunity. He's not closing the deal for me. I got to close the deal myself. I got to prove yep. to you that I got the value. But those folks would have never known who I was if Rory not have made the introduction. Secondarily, they wouldn't give me the time of day if I cold called them myself. But because it was a warm market introduction from someone that they already value. It raised my level of credibility, even though, you know, I've worked for the president of the United States and I've done business on my own and I got my own thing. Still, I don't have the same level of credibility that he has. And that introduction meant the world to me.
2: Man, I love that advice. Two things that any of us can and absolutely should be doing. I really want to respect your time, but there's one more uh, key question here so you can make it a long one or a short one. Um, Sure there's a lot of people out there that say, hey, I get it. Not a fair race. You know, a lot of headwinds. But why is it my responsibility? I have have a busy life. I have my own challenges. Why is it my responsibility to also go seek out these opportunities to lift Black entrepreneurs and aspiring uh, Black people up?
0: Uh, My my answer to that question would be in this vein, is the rising tide lifts all boats. And that means if the tide rises for us all, then we all win. And you have to have an abundance mentality about entrepreneurship. And there are a lot of people who have that mentality of I'm going to give more, I'm going to do more because it's going to pay me tenfold if I have that abundance mentality and if I don't have the mentality of lack. And some people see other entrepreneurs of color as competition. And I say that the more we lift each other up, the higher we lift each other up, the greater the places that we can climb together. And if you don't like the social ills in our society, and so nobody likes poverty, nobody likes crime, nobody wants to see homelessness. If you don't want to see any of the negative issues that exist in any given city in in America, the number one thing you can do Is invest in an entrepreneur from that community. And I heard this quote, it's attributed to Martin Luther King Jr. And a lot of people know him for a lot of famous quotes, but it's been passed down to me by many of my friends and mentors. And they say, Anton, the best way you can help poor people is to not be one of them. And so the context is, I got to grow myself and grow my business Because if I grow my business, then I can help somebody else to get out of the situation that they're in. And I know so many entrepreneurs, and we really didn't even get a chance to talk about my passion, which is hip hop music and culture, that the poverty that many of the entrepreneurs in the hip hop industry came from was unprecedented. But the Mm -hmm. fact is, they have become some of the greatest entrepreneurs in American history. They took items that everybody else threw away and turned it into music records that nobody played anymore, uh, equipment that nobody really wanted to use when everybody was moving to CDs, and they turned it into a multi-billion-dollar-year industry that now spans fashion and everything else. And what you see when you look at hip-hop culture, what you see when you look at music, is entrepreneurs who take their friends who get out of jail because they committed a crime at sixteen, and they give them a line of business. I'm going to have you run my clothing operation. Because I know you did that bad thing selling drugs, but you know how to move product. So you understand units of measure. You understand the cost equation in shipping and lost product. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Take what you've learned and use it in a positive way. And I've seen so many people come off of the street and build monumental lives for themselves. And I'm not talking about the jay Zs or the Sean uh, Puffy Combs kind of folks. I'm talking about people who you've never heard of who are now owning juice bars, running legitimate businesses. And they all started as musicians and they learned as quickly as anybody else. I mean, like even MC Hammer, the person that people like to make fun of about being a pop star. You know, MC Hammer right now uses his wealth and he invests in a program called The Last Mile, which teaches guys who are coming out of San Quentin prison how to code so they can go get jobs at tech companies in Silicon Valley. Wow. And so the context is that we all can invest in some way to grow the entrepreneurial spirit. Because you and I both know the more entrepreneurs we have, the greater the revolution we have in this country that we all eat well, we all win, we all enjoy life, and we literally embody what the American dream is. And the best entrepreneurs should want that for everybody. We all can win, and we all got to help each other win by rising that tide. So, all boats can lift.
2: Yes, I couldn't agree more. It's exactly what the show represents. I love it. I love it. I love it, Anton. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, where can we find you? Where should we follow you? Where could we check into your leadership offerings?
0: That'd be great. So, um, you can go, all things are at antongun.com. So, go to my homepage, my website, antongun.com. If you want to follow me on social media, at Anton J. Gunn on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on Facebook. And um, I do most of my social media stuff on LinkedIn. That's where business is, gets done. That's where I find my clients and service my clients. So you can find me anywhere, but I'm happy, happy to help anybody to build a world-class culture and learn how to be a great leader that everyone in the world would admire.
2: We will make sure to put all the links to all of those. And it's, by the way, it's gun with two ends at the end, in case anyone's starting to look them up right now. That's correct. Anton Gun with two ends two at the end. All right, uh, very last question. I usually ask, why should people be unapologetic about their pursuit of success? But for you, I'm going to change it because you said one of your core principles is legacy. So give me a reason why people should be unapologetic about their pursuit of legacy.
0: They should be unapologetic about their pursuit of legacy because at the end of the day, uh, we all have to leave this earth at some point. And what we want is that after we're gone, that the entire world that's what we should want is that the entire world will continue to benefit from the work that we did today. So the work that we do today will have an impact for tomorrow and you should be unapologetically about what you do today that will have a lasting impact on your community on this planet tomorrow. That is the greatest gift that we can give to other people.
2: That is awesome. I love it, I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show. I just cannot thank you enough and I can't wait to collaborate in the future.
0: Great, thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous,